Hey everyone, it's Steven. Good to be with you all here this morning. You know, it's crazy. I don't know if you remember, but I was the last person to give an in-person message to the congregation at church. And now I'll be the last person to give a pre-recorded message as we move from this format to our live stream next week. A lot has happened since that fateful Sunday in March. We've moved everything online, picked up new hobbies, and uh, Pastor Darren grew out a magnificent beard. One hobby that I've always had and has try have tried not to indulge in too much over quarantine is playing video games. I don't let myself play too many video games because I know that if I do, I won't be able to stop. One game in particular that stood out to me over the years was this phone app that came out uh, called HQ. It's a trivia game where if you answered all the questions correctly, you would win a cash prize that was divided among the winners. So if the cash prize was $5,000 and only 10 people won, you would win about $500. Unlike most video games and board games like Monopoly, where the money that you get is simply there to help you win the game but has no bearing on real life, uh, this game was particularly of interest to me because of its potential to impact my real life. Unfortunately, I'm not so good at trivia. Uh, the most I won was like 17 cents on, the on an office TV show themed quiz. Um, which, and the only reason why I, I won that quiz was because I binge watched that entire show multiple times. <laughs> but I bring this up to you because just as I was fascinated by the idea of, of what I did in a video game that it could have a real like substantive impact on my real life in, here on earth, in today's passage, Jesus reminds us that his disciples, um, during the, the small time that we are here on this earth, it could have a very significant impact once we reach eternity. Did I just compare our life here on earth to a video game? Maybe, but uh, let's jump into the passage to see what we're talking about here. We're in Luke chapter 16, and verse 1 reads like this. Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can be manager no longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking my, away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. He asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of the light. Okay, let's stop there for now. So I don't know about you, but when I, I read this, I was, I was a little confused. In my Bible right here, uh, if, Andrew, if you could go to the uh, cut to the ESV version during this part. Um, it, says, um, it says, this is titled, The Passage of the Dishonest Manager. And yet, this guy gets praised? It's a little weird. I think in order to better understand this passage, we need to define what the word shrewd means, which 
The dictionary defines as sharp judgment. My initial impression of the manager being shrewd was simply that he cooked the books, right? So he could, he might earn a few favors with people. But if that was the case, then why did his master, who he cheated, why did he commend him? Upon further research in the commentaries, one person says that, that his move was particularly brilliant for two reasons. For starters, by reducing the projected income of his master, right, it would be harder to see evidence of the servant's mismanagement. More importantly, the manager would have gained public favor for himself and for the master because he would portray the master as this really generous guy. As it was common for masters during that time to forgive the debts of other people when economic times were difficult. If the, manager, if the master were to punish the manager now, it would appear that he would be doing so because his own manager's kind gestures. Uh, and that would negate all the goodwill that he had built up. So this, this, this criminal manager, right, he could be jailed, but he wisely stakes everything on his master's honor as a generous man. The manager thought ahead and used what he had, like the control of his contracts and his relationships, to try to achieve a certain outcome in the future. He had a vision and was purposeful, which is very commendable. So Jesus' message is this. If worldly people think ahead, can think ahead regarding money, right, how much more should God's people do so? In other words, Jesus is not advocating for dishonesty, but rather good judgment. You might not think that Jesus cared all that much about money. After all, he was a carpenter in a backwater town, and, when he was, and then he was a traveling preacher who would stay with people who provided lodging for him. He didn't work hard to earn a living while he was doing his ministry. And you would be right to acknowledge that, that he didn't have a whole lot to do with money. However, G Jesus, in his recorded teachings in the Gospels, spoke on money almost more than any other topic. It's mentioned in about 33% of the parables and about 10% of all the verses of the gospel. And I think the reason why he addressed it so much is because it's something that we can come into contact with every day, right? It's a, it's a tool we use all the time. Money can be powerful, but it's not inherently good or bad. It just depends on the person that uses it. So in this passage, and in many other passages, Jesus is giving us instruction on the importance of using money well. We'll come back to verse 9. So skipping ahead to verse 10, it reads, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So we might think that this passage about the dishonest manager doesn't really apply to us, right? Because we don't manage other people's money, right? And, and some of us are thinking like, you know, I, I, I don't manage other people's money. I can do with my own money what I want. Um, however, I would argue that this passage does indeed apply to you and to every believer. In this passage, we see that the dishonest manager is managing possessions that are not, that are not his own, but rather his master's. If they were his, like he could mismanage them however he chose to because they were his possessions. But to mismanage the funds of someone else entrusted to him, right, that would be an egregious decision. We've seen uh, so much 
pain and suffering from people, how people have taken advantage of others and mismanaged their, their wealth. They've taken their wealth and spent it, right? There's Ponzi schemes, there's the recession back in 2007. So we see the consequences of how, how drastic the, of an impact mismanagement of, of possessions can be. However, I would argue that in, in, in a similar way, right, we have been given many blessings here on this earth, but none of it's our own. As Christians, we believe that everything ultimately belongs to God and that we have simply been entrusted with taking care of what we have been given. Right? So it's for this very reason why it's so important to manage our possessions well, because they're not our own. This brings us to our second point. We're called to be good stewards of God's possessions. We're called to be good stewards of God's possessions. If we think we can so frivolously spend and become overly self-indulgent, right, then we can become just like the dishonest manager. From this, I think it's important to realize that stewardship isn't just an aspect of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard. We as Americans, we got a lot of stuff, right? It's a lot to keep track of. But it's crucial for us to understand our role as stewards because when we do, we can use our money, our time, our, our resources, and we can use it to invest in the kingdom of God. And this is actually what Jesus highlights in verse 9, the verse that we skipped. It's a little bit of a, of a doozy, so bear with me. Right? It, it reads, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what is this passage saying? Renee told me that when she was studying this passage in her college fellowship, they referred to it as the buy your friends passage, and it generated a lot of controversy and discussion. Taken at face value, it sort of does seem like that's what we're supposed to do, right? Spend money on our friends and, and, and win them over. But after spending some time with with this passage, I, the interpretation I've come up with is, is slightly different. We see in this verse that Jesus uses the words earthly riches and eternal dwellings, contrasting the two. We've already established that up, upon the earth, like you are in charge of things which are not really yours. God has entrusted them to us, and you cannot take them with you when you die, no matter how hard you try. On the other hand, everything that we have in heaven lasts for all eternity. This is why Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So his point here is that if we truly believe life is eternal, we won't have invested all of our time and finances into like entertainments and possessions that will simply perish, Right? Instead, we will use what God has given us shrewdly. We'll pour all our energy in, and resources into behaviors and actions that will make an eternal difference and resonate throughout eternity. This brings us to our third point, that trading in earthly treasures for a heavenly treasure is the best investment you could ever make. Trading in earthly treasure for heavenly treasure is the best investment you could ever make. I don't know a whole lot about investments, but even in my very limited understanding of how investments work, I think that this is probably the greatest investment that anyone could make, right? We see from this passage that heavenly treasures are not 
mere possessions that we just take to heaven with us, right? That would be pointless. The streets are literally lined with gold, and God, in his infinite power, could give us all the coffee and puppies that we could want. Something that God won't give us more of, however, is, this, is citizens in heaven, right? From my understanding, once God creates a new heaven and a new earth, like that's it, the old will pass away, and whoever has accepted Christ will be with him in paradise. When it's all said and done, that number will be fixed. And so my hope is that when we're enjoying heaven, right, and enjoying God for all that he has done for us, that we'll be able to enjoy it with as many people who are with us too, right, as many people as possible some of whom we have maybe even played a role in helping them be there. If we can use our earthly treasures and resources to influence that, even in the slightest, it's a worthwhile cause. True treasure is not possessions, but people. When we see, when we're in heaven, no one will care how nice our cars and houses and bank accounts were on earth. That'll be like a blink of an eye and like a, a dream of the past. We'll care about who is with us and how we used what we had for the kingdom. What we do in this life is so small, but has eternal consequences. And my prayer is that when, when it's all said and done, that we don't look back and see missed opportunities or missing people, but rather are really able to rejoice in its fullest. So to sum it up, are we, to buy, are we supposed to buy our friends? Not necessarily, right? But are we called to use our resources creatively and with good stewardship and shrewdness so that we might advance God's kingdom and rejoice with as many people as possible when we die and see Jesus? Yes. If then we are called to use good judgment and stewardship over our possessions to invest in loving our neighbor and to advancing the kingdom and all these things, like how do we do it? And how do we know if we're doing a good job? Rather than point to the tangible examples or characteristics that we can just check off, like I would have liked Jesus to provide like a checklist for everything I'm supposed to do. What I instead took away from the scripture is that if we want to be effective Christians, we need to examine our heart's posture towards money. If we want to be effective Christians, we must examine our heart's posture towards money. Verses 13 through 15 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who vilify yourselves in the eyes of, the, of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. We see that here that... that Money in itself is not evil, but the love of money is. If we have money as an idol, the thing that invites us to worship, that money invites us to worship, is really ourselves as we indulge in our own comfort and pleasure. Nowadays, like so many people, have, they have like multiple jobs trying to make ends meet, right? And they, uh, we have all these things competing for our attention. Um, and so we try to do it all, and we think we can multitask, but we don't do it well. Uh, my family is particularly notorious for multitasking not well, and my brother lost his phone for a month, and when we found it, it was in the refrigerator. We need to realize that serving God is not a part-time job. It's not something that we can multitask, and there is no such thing as a part-time Christian. 
everything we own and everything we are belongs to God. He is the most exclusive master. We either totally belong to him or not at all. And he wants us to belong to him. God wants our whole heart. In Matthew 6, 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can see pretty clearly where the Pharisees' hearts were. The Pharisees believed that, that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and a person's goodness. They loved to be seen out in public doing spiritual and generous things. But the more they exalted themselves before men, the more they became an abomination to God. Yikes. The question begins, this, this begs the question, where are our hearts? What do we spend our time and money on? And these aren't, these, these aren't questions I can ask, answer for you. So I would encourage you to actually pause like, the video and think about it. But what I can point to are, are biblical examples of people's hearts and money. In Luke, uh, skipping ahead a few chapters, in Luke 18, we see a rich young ruler who follows all the commands of Jesus. Uh, and yet, when asked to sell what he had and give to the poor so he could follow him, he walked away sad because he was a man of great wealth and treasured that in his heart. But in Luke 19, we see a man named Zacchaeus who lied and cheated on his own countrymen as a tax collector. But when experiencing the love of Christ firsthand, he was changed. He gave away half his possessions to the poor on the spot and paid back, said he would pay back anyone who he had cheated four times the amount that they were owed. And it is to, and it's to Zacchaeus that Jesus says, today salvation has come to his house, not the rich young ruler. So I ask, where do you fall? This might be an uncomfortable, introspective look into our own hearts because I feel like money is one of those like, intensely private things. We don't go around asking each other, like, how much, how much do you make? Or what's your in uh, income for this year? Like, right? It's, it's a sense of and personal issue. Therefore, it's like, easy to assume that others have it together or, and maybe to even assume that we have it together or just to sweep it under the rug if we know we don't got it together but we don't got to tell nobody, right? It's not always easy to discern like, idolatry of money because it's so private and it's so built into our consumeristic, capitalistic culture. But these things are not hidden from God, right? He knows our hearts. So uh, just in the interest of being vulnerable, like I will say that preaching this message for me was pretty, pretty challenging, right? As I attempted to undergo this whole examining my own heart in terms of money. I came from like a relatively nice family and never had to worry about being provided for when I was growing up, got a lot of Christmas presents. And so now that I'm grown and like I have to figure out how to pay my taxes and uh, pay rent and, and, and work in the workplace, it's been challenging for me. Like things like budgeting and tithing and financial planning, they're not my strengths. I have no idea what my credit score is. In fact, like, I actually just, like, I actually, like, really hate thinking about it, which is why, like, I've often put it off. Um, but I think just over the, over the past season, I've, I've come to see that part of my worship and part of my role as a Christian means good stewardship of my finances. It allows me to love other people better. 
like I'm still a work in progress, and it's still like this whole money process is is. is I haven't figured out. Still, have, I still haven't figured out my budget, but I have convict, been convicted to take the first step forward to try to get there. From this passage, so specifically, I think it's worth noting that Jesus—he doesn't actually mention like tithing. That's just like a personal conviction that I had. But what I do see being mentioned here in the scriptures is what we've talked about, right? Stewarding money and our resources well and using them to reach the lost and advance God's kingdom. In essence, we are called to submit to God in all areas of our life, our finances being one of them. As uh, the, the 16th century church reformer Martin Luther said it like this, there are three conversions necessary, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. I'm not sure where you're at in terms of loving God with your heart, your mind, and your money, and frankly, I could use God's help in all of those areas. Um, but the most poignant for me during this time has really been focused on submitting my finances to the Lord and trusting Him. So anyway, those are my thoughts um, on this passage. I hope that you found it helpful and that the Holy Spirit has spoken you to you in some way. And I'd just like to conclude this message by sharing that. If, if you don't feel like you have the joy that Zacchaeus had, but you have a desire in your heart, to surrender to God in the area of finances, then I would encourage you to, um, to really try, try to be obedient and to Scripture and to steward your possessions well for the benefit of others and, to, um, and all those things that we've talked about today. But um, I, think, I think maybe what would even be uh, more powerful is just to ask for help, both from God and from people who are strong in the area of finances. I've asked a lot of questions to people about budgeting and investments, and I, I wouldn't be where I'm at today without their help. And, and lastly, I would encourage you, most importantly, to remember the cross. That though we owed an unpayable debt, while we were yet unrepentant and broken sinners, Jesus died for us, and he paid our debts so that we might gain him as our greatest treasure. And it's in light of that great treasure that we are able to have this renewed heart of joy. If we, like Zacchaeus, are able to encounter Christ's radical, life-changing love and remember how we've been changed, using what we have for the sake of his kingdom will come naturally and be one of the most joyous and easy decisions that we could ever make.